Uh, I don't know about you, but when uh, I heard Megan's story last week of inviting her friends, and, and uh, two things happen for me when I uh, hear a story like that. And one is I feel greatly encouraged and inspired because one of the things we believe as a church is that every one of us is gifted by God, some more than others, to share their faith. But all of us are called to invite friends. We're all witnesses of Jesus. And so I feel encouraged, but at the same time also feel, oh, I haven't invited anybody yet. Do you ever have that feeling? Anybody not invited anybody yet? Yeah, that was, that was kind of me. And um, so anyway, so I, in such situations, I often go to other people for reassurance in the hope that they've not invited anybody either. <laughs> and say, hey, did you hear this great story about Megan? And I was chatting to Sandy and Hannah Deans last week, and Hannah came straight in, which she said, well, Sandy's invited his five already. And uh, I was like, oh, man, this is going really badly for me now. I haven't invited anybody. So yesterday, I was just leaving the house. We were going to, to the Hearts football match. And I, I found that there was a leaflet just by the door, and I grabbed one, I stuck it in my pocket, and uh, I said, Jesus, please give me an opportunity. You see, it doesn't work for me to leave leaflets in my office. I, I work at the church here. <laughs> I, I feel like I could do that and tell you I did the same thing. But, so anyway, so I, I stuck a leaflet in my pocket, and I just prayed, Jesus, give me an opportunity. Anyway, as we were walking to the football match, we bumped into a guy I'd not seen for a couple of years. I've had conversations about Jesus with him before. He's come to the toddler group and stuff like that. And, and it was just a moment in God. And I said, I've got just the thing for you right here. It's in my pocket. So if, like me, you find that you don't get the same opportunities and all that, I want to take you, tell you to put a flyer in your pocket and to pray and say, God, would you use me today? And he will. If you can do that for me, he can certainly do that for you. Right, so we're reading from Ephesians chapter 3 today. We're doing this great series in Ephesians, this amazing book, which we're encouraging you to read in your own time, read it through again and again and again. It's totally brilliant, really helpful for a Christian. Uh, And if you're not a Christian, to read this book. And we're reading from Ephesians 3, verses 19 to 22. And we're talking about this idea of the church being the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on earth. So... Here we go. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's that phrase just at the end of those verses where it says, you are being built together. And I want to draw attention to this fact today that God is doing something remarkable on the earth today. And it's totally countercultural to anything else that is going on in the world. You know, we live in a world full of rampant, rampant individualism, and it's getting worse all of the time. And you think, well, individual expression, surely that's not a bad thing. Well, sure, it's not a bad thing, but individualism is where you prize that over and above any other thing. And the thing that happens is if you prize individualism as being the goal of the human race, then the thing it destroys is community. You can't have community if you believe that the ultimate thing is individualism and self-expression and me being the best me that I can be. If you believe that's your thing, then community is destroyed. 
And what you think, I don't know if, if it's just me, but as I look out on the world that we live in, it just seems increasingly fragmented and increasingly de-unified. That's not a word. <laughs> but it seems like, isn't it, doesn't everybody seem to be falling out with each other these days? In the news? From, <laughs> from presidents to pop stars, to ordinary people, everybody believing that they have this right to self-expression. And I'm entitled to say whatever I think, because that's part of me expressing myself. And if I don't say it, I'm not being true to myself. But the result is this. It destroys relationship. It builds tension. And here's the mantra we're being taught all the time. The answer to the world's problems is just more of me. More of me being the best me that I can be. Here's the truth that this might be dawning on you, and if you're a Christian, I hope it has. That if you look deep, deep inside yourself, you don't find the answers to the world's problems, you find the problem of the world. The deeper you look in yourself, you find actually I'm a sinner, and actually the more of myself I express to the world, the more problems I have the potential to cause. And what you find is this, that we're out of sync with the creator who made us. See, when you look at God, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in community and unity and perfection. And the world that God made was originally like that. But there's a narrative that God is calling you and I to be a part of today. And it's to be part of this magnificent thing called the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's a place in the world where unity can be displayed and worked out like no other place on earth. And today I want to invite you into this journey if you're not already in it. And if you're in this journey, I want to encourage you to participate fully in it. It's the most wonderful thing in all the world. We're going to come to our verses in just a moment. But Ephesians 1 verse 11, in the message paraphrase says this, it is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. We should be on the uh, other slides by now, by the way, just to let you know. See, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Here's what the Bible says, the answer isn't within you, it's outside of you. The answer isn't in looking deep within yourself, it's looking at Jesus, And the potential and the power and the purpose of your life isn't found in you looking in yourself. It's about looking to God and his purposes in the world. Corrie Ten Boom said, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. So here's the deal. Your life isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And it's about building his church and working out his purposes in the earth. And as we sang about the victory of Jesus in our worship earlier on, this is what the victory of Jesus looks like. It's not that we all go on a pilgrimage to the Middle East and to find the place where he was crucified and where his tomb was, although you can do that. It's this, that there are communities of God all over the world that testify to the fact that Jesus is alive. This is his victory. And I mean, Amal read the scripture about us being the temple of God's spirit 
today, uh, Alice King also shared that word on the Student Twenties weekend away last year, and she had these couple of really helpful comments which I'm going to use this morning. She, she talked about the, the purpose and the process of being the Church of God. And we are in this time when God is building his church, and here's a brief Bible study I want to do with you this morning. Are you up for that? Are you up for a Bible study? We do that in churches sometimes. We read the Bible and we see what it means. Here's Here's the point I want to make to you. The point is this, that God has always been in the business of making a dwelling place on earth where people can meet with him. Okay, always. You'll read it from Genesis to Revelation. We're not going to read every page, but here we go. Genesis chapter 3. You find that God makes a paradise on earth called Eden. And you find that there's a man and a woman that he puts there. And this is what we read about that time. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What an amazing thought. There was a time that, you see, we think God's omnipresent. He he is, but Adam and Eve, there was a time of day when God was especially close to them, where they knew his presence was right there. They heard him walking. It's like, God's here. God's here. And you know, God wants the church to be a place where his presence is known. Where we can enjoy fellowship with him. We we find a a generation goes by, more generations. God reveals himself to Abraham. Uh, Generations go by. Then Moses is in the wilderness and there's a bush burning. And what we find out, it's not just a bush burning, it's God. It's God. God is there within the flames of the bush. And God reveals himself to Moses saying, I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He says, I'm God and I'm revealing myself to you, Moses. But here's what he wanted Moses to do. He said, I want you to go and rescue the people of Israel from Egypt. They're in captivity. And I want you to bring them here. Have you ever wondered why God led his people into the wilderness? It's because he was there. He said, in fact, Exodus chapter 3 verse 12 says, I will be with you. This will be the sign to you that... I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He's saying, Moses, go and get the people and bring them to me. God said, I want to be with them. I want to be with my people. Church is a place where we can know God and his presence among us. What you found was when God led them out of Egypt, there was this pillar of uh, fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. God was manifestly present. So when other people saw Israel coming, they also saw this flame of fire or this pillar of cloud. Wherever they went, it was like, wow, watch out for these guys. God is with them. And that's why when they entered the promised land, and you know know Moses sent the spies out, or Joshua sent the spies out, and they came back with a bad report saying, gosh, these, these giants in this promised land seem a little bit on the big side, we're a bit worried. Do you know why God was cross with them? Because they had a pillar of fire next to them. It's not a time to, to pick the size of your giants when you've got God on your side, visibly, manifestly present. God said to Moses, I want you to build me a tent. The tabernacle was the tent that God used when he went camping. In Exodus 25, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And so Moses and craftsmen built this tent. 
And they put the Ark of the Covenant in it. And they would pack up the tent. Whenever the pillar of fire moved on, they'd pack up the tent and they'd follow the pillar of fire. And when it stopped, they would recamp and God would descend. It's where people knew that God would be. It was a place where God led. They were led by the presence of God. We want the church to be a place where people are led by the Spirit of God. There was a a bit of a a problem at one point. When you read the book of Exodus, you, you read that in Exodus 32, that despite God being visibly manifest and saying, worship me, the people of Israel said, you know what, we've got a better idea, let's build a golden calf. So they built a golden calf, they worshipped it, and God was angry with them. And Moses intercedes before God. Because God says, you know what, Moses, the problem here is, if I go with you, if I send my presence with this people, the danger is they're just going to get destroyed by their sinfulness. And so God says, I've got a solution here, Moses. What do you think? He says, I'm going to send my angel with you. I'll send an angel with you, and he'll watch out for you and all of that. And Moses comes back to God, and he says this in Exodus 33. He says, this is inadequate. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the people on the face of of the earth. Here's what Moses is grown to understand. This is the USP of the people of God. This is what we've got. Unless we've got the presence of God, we've got nothing. Unless he's with us, unless he's filling us, unless he's leading us, unless he's guiding us, unless he's shaping us, we've got nothing. That tent was then brought to Jerusalem. David said this, he said, I love your house, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. And he asked God for permission to build a temple. And this is what we read in Solomon's reign in 2 Chronicles 7. He said, when Solomon finished praying for the temple as it had been finished, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. They couldn't even do their jobs because God was filling the place with his presence and his glory. That temple got destroyed. The people of Israel remained idolatrous. God punished them. He sent them out to surrounding nations. The temple got ransacked. But then God brings them back and they start rebuilding the temple. And there's promises that God makes in Haggai 2 verse 9, for example, where God says the glory of this new house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And as they rebuilt that temple, there was this moment where they realized because this new temple was smaller than the old one, Some of the old people who remembered what it was like in the glory days, they said, well, this this isn't very good. This isn't as good as it was, and they began to weep. And there was this feeling that, that, that this promise was somehow not as fulfilled as it needed to be. The glory of this latter house being greater than the glory of the former house. And so it was almost one of those those promises that was just on hold. People thought, well, has it been fulfilled or hasn't it? 
it, it just reminded me of something. Uh, one of my son's uh, baby teeth fell out last night. He's seven years old. This is it here. Um, uh, he, he hasn't had his money for it yet, but um, <laughs> I, I stole it from under his pillow. Tooth fairy forgot again. Um, but a few years ago, our son Ben, he was three years old. He knocked his front teeth out, and they, they were just totally gone. And, you know, after he calmed down and, you know, we reassured him, hey, Ben, you know, it's fine, because these are just the baby teeth. And, you know, your, your new teeth will come, and it will be fine. And, and as he stopped crying, and we were putting him to bed that night, and he said to me, Dad, will I get my new teeth tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, maybe not tomorrow. And he said, the day after? I said, no, not the day after. I said, but soon. Soon. And about four years later, they started coming (laughs) through, and now he's got his teeth, and he's dead happy about it. You see, sometimes we wait for the promises of God to come to pass, and God gave promises about the temple that were never meant to be fulfilled by the Old Testament temple. Because what you find is when Jesus comes into the world, as we celebrate at Christmas time, You find particularly in John's Gospel, John uses the language of temple to describe the person of Jesus. So in John chapter 1 verse 14, you read this phrase, it says, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You could translate that tabernacle, he tented it among us. The sense is this, that God was among us, just like he used to be in the olden days. And then John does this thing where he just reorders the chronology of the life of Jesus because what you find is one of the very next events in John's Gospel is Jesus clearing the temple and going in there and people are criticizing him and and Jesus makes this comment. He says, knock this temple down and I will rebuild it again in three days. And they said, wow, how can you do that? It's the years to build this temple. And John helpfully points out, he said... The temple he had spoken of was his body. What's Jesus saying? I am the temple of the spirit. Knock me down, kill me, put me in a grave, and I will be back in three days stronger than ever before. See, Jesus was pointing to a temple that was eternal, that was embodied in him. It wasn't physical bricks and mortar, but it was in a person. But then Jesus also pointed to another sense of this temple, which was this, the people of God. He said, I'll build my church. And then he promised them that the the presence of God, the spirit of God would be upon them. And in Acts chapter 2, you find the presence of God, the spirit of God coming among them. And just as we've seen, that God's presence is often accompanied by fire. What happened in Acts chapter 2? It says, flames came and rested on 120 believers in a room in Jerusalem. It didn't just appear as a big flame in the middle. Otherwise, there'd be a church in Jerusalem where everyone says, go here, that's where the presence is. No, it was the people. They were all filled with the Spirit. And when they went out from there to whatever their jobs were, they were filled with the Spirit. But when they gathered together, God was among them. And Paul uses this image that we've looked at this morning. Sometimes, one time actually, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase temple of the spirit to refer to you as an individual believer. Once. Three times he uses this phrase to talk about the church as God's community, his people, the local church. King's church, central, 
Barclay Viewforce, any church that you can think of, is the temple of God. That's what we're to understand by this. So you read 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? 2 Corinthians 6.16, the Amal read for us. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and walk among them and will be their God and they will be my people. And Ephesians 2.21 that we read earlier. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what church is. I was reading a commentary and it said there's no more important definition of what the church on planet earth is this than the dwelling place of God. The place where God lives by his spirit. And if you want to know where the whole trajectory of human history is going, you read in Revelation 21 verse 4, this is the end of our Bible study, which took longer, longer than I said it would, but <laughs> Revelation 21 verse 4 says, look, this city coming down from heaven, it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. See, this is what God's doing, he's... He's making a dwelling place, a place where he's comfortable to be, a place where people can see him and know him and feel him and experience him and be taught about him. Church is a place where we taste the powers of the age to come. And it's my conviction that the church is the focal point of God's redemptive purposes in every village, in every town, in every suburb, in every city. That's why it's so exciting. A couple of months ago, we, we planted a weekly church into Livingston. Why are we doing it? Because we believe by having a vibrant community, a place where God dwells, we believe that that's going to be good news for that city, that town. We believe that God is going to be among them. And you go along there, and it's full of really great people, some great friends, but here's the truth. They don't have as many musicians as we do, they certainly don't have as big a stage as we do. They don't, have a, they don't have a building. They don't have as many people. But what do they have? God. God. Because God loves his church and he loves to be among people who call on him. And that is the hope of our nation as we plant churches. And that's something that we're, we're doing here. It's perhaps a moment for us to pause and reflect. It's probably helpful to say, if you've been coming to Kings for a while, a lot has changed. In the last three months, we've planted a church. We've seen some great friends go over there to do that. We moved from one morning service to a morning and an evening, and people are choosing one of those over the other to say, actually, this is my church community. Increasingly, that, if you've been here a while, and particularly if you're uh, somebody who doesn't thrive on change, some of us love change, but you'll be feeling, gosh, this is, this is sad. This feels painful at times. Because actually, I used to see these people every week. We used to hang out. We used to get a coffee together. And I feel that way too. But the thing is this. We've always held up this value that we are a relational church. A relation, that's one of our highest values. And we still totally believe that. But we need to understand that being a relational community doesn't mean that nothing ever changes. Just like families change over time and kids come along and grandkids and all those things so God is changing us and that's a really good thing if you think about your own journey in kings there was a time when you came in and you didn't know anybody am I right 
And what happened? Somebody said, join my small group. Come into our friendship circle. Somebody said, you know what, I'd love to get a coffee with you. And over time, you began to think, you know what, I quite like some of these people. And then over time, you thought, you know, my life wouldn't be the same without these people. And then over more time, you thought, it would be awful if any of these people ever left my life. (laughs) And then God, in his sovereignty, switches things around. He says, well, we are going to have to move things around a bit here. What's the answer? The answer is this, that we keep building relationally. And just as you came into circles of friendship, so now create circles of friendship and invite people into your world. Invite people into your small group. I'm very aware of the challenges, particularly as you grow older and busier. Life is so busy. All of you here would say to me, if I said to you, how's your week been? You'd probably say, oh, I've been busy. (laughs) The thing that always gets squeezed is this thing, to want to make new friends. We much prefer hanging out with the old people that we've done it with for ages. Isn't that right? Am I wrong here? Sorry, I just... uh, (laughs) I I think I'm right on this. I'm going to keep going. Um, And God wants to keep building you with friends that that you love, but he wants you to keep opening your door and your life to new people. And I promise if you do that, God will keep building this church here. And he'll keep helping you in that process. And you won't feel like, gosh, everybody's going. You'll feel like God is bringing more and more people into my life. Anyway, so that was just a, a point as we continue to build relationship at Kings and what that looks like. But I want us to see three points of application in terms of this, because the danger is with everything I've said so far, right, as we talk about the glory of God filling his temple, there's two types of Christian I find on the whole. There's the Christians who love to, to, to concentrate on the glory. Do you know what I mean? We, we love to talk about the presence of God, the spirit of God, you know, we're, we're discerning, is he here, what's going on, is he speaking to us? And we love that, we love to be a church that loves the Holy Spirit. There's other people, and they'd also be in this room, who say, well, I'm, I'm less in tune with that stuff, but I'm pragmatic, I'm much more about how do things work, and how do we form a church, how do we build a church, and, and it's important these verses show us that it's not either or. It's not either or, it's not all about just waiting for the glory to turn up. Because actually what Paul says, this is something that God is building. It's something that rises to become a holy dwelling in the Lord. That's to say that no church has ever arrived. It's something that God is constantly doing. He's making us fit to be a dwelling for his spirit. And he dwells among us in increasing measures. This verse teaches us about process. It says, verse 20 of Ephesians 2 that we read, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So here's your three things. Build on, build in, build up. This is the three elements. If we're going to be this place that God dwells by his spirit, these are some of the things we need to take seriously. Firstly, we build on Jesus and the foundations that he specifies. So the chief cornerstone is who? Jesus. Jesus. The cornerstone, if you're not used to kind of um, biblical uh, archaeology and all of those things, the cornerstone is the most important brick in the building. It's in the foundation and it's at the corner. It's usually the one that has the name and the date that it was built. It's the place from which the whole building would get its alignment. If you got that in the wrong place, the whole building would be wrong. 
I remember when I was an engineer many years ago, one of my first jobs was they sent me to a building site to supervise some construction work. There's this massive, massive industrial shed being built. And they'd laid this beautiful concrete slab as far as the eye could see. And my boss said to me on day one, he says, so Dan, he says, your job is to check that it's been built right. I said, mm, okay. And he gave me a, a, a sort of a, a level instrument thing, and he said, you're to go over the, the whole of that concrete slab and to check that it's exactly level within a tolerance of plus or minus five millimeters. I was like, you're kidding. <laughs> five millimeters? I've never done anything in my life to that accuracy before. <laughs> said, but this is his point. He said, because if, if it's outside of that tolerance, what we'll find is by the time we build the building, it will be very, very wrong at the top. He said, so your job is to check it's all perfect, and if it's not, you need to go to those builders and tell them to sort it out. I mean, to be honest, the job was boring enough, but the reward is really to, to go and to see, see some guys who looked like they used bags of concrete for weights <laughs> and to tell them that they needed to do something about it. But here's the thing. Foundations are important. Jesus is the most important aspect of any church. He's the one we worship. He's the one we love. He's the one that, whom our whole life is about. If you don't know him yet, then this is the most important thing I can say to you. Build your life on Jesus. Give yourself to him. Follow him. Accept what he's done for you on the cross and through rising from death for you to take away your sin. But that's not the full story in terms of this foundation image that Paul paints. He said, he said there's the cornerstone. He said, but there's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's two senses to what that means. See, Jesus said to the Apostle Peter, he said, you're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. So Jesus says, when he's building his church, he said, at the very foundation level, what we need to understand this, that how we build it is vitally important. It's not just like, well, as long as you're building Jesus, do what you like. He says, no, you build church according to a pattern that God revealed, that God revealed to the first apostles. And so we have... The New Testament, which is full of the instructions of the apostles on how they would build church and the instructions they gave to Christians. The prophetic writings of the Old Testament that tell us God's purposes and vision for his church, for his people. But also has this sense as well, that in Ephesians 4 it tells us that apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers and evangelists are gifts of the ascended Christ. So when Jesus returned to heaven, having already appointed twelve that verse teaches us that he's now in the business of appointing apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Therefore, for churches to really become all that God intends them to be, it's my firm conviction that churches need to receive apostolic and prophetic ministry in the present. And we love that as a church. We receive apostolic and prophetic gifts to help us make sure we're on a good foundation and that we build correctly. So we build on. Secondly, we build in. We build in Jesus. It says we are joined together in him. We're not just a load of bricks. God doesn't just say, there you go. See, the, the, the problem with individualism is this. It doesn't build anything. The problem is, the individualism says, well, you're different to me. Great. Whereas community says this, 
You're different to me. Let's learn from one another. Let's correct one another. And let's celebrate the differences we've made in as far as we can so that we can become all that God made us to be together. In this verse, Jews and Gentiles who formerly had nothing to do with each other were told to come together, to be built together. What do we as a church community have in common? The Apostle Paul would say this to us. Well, it's not your background, it's not your education, it's not your wealth or lack of it, it's not your political beliefs. It's not any of those things, although you may have some of those things in common with a number of people here. It's not that we're all nice and middle class. It's this, that we're all built on this one foundation and we all believe and are coming to believe the same things about God and Jesus and his plans for the world. So listen to what he says as Paul describes increasing unity in the church in a world of disunity. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says this, make every effort to keep the, bond of, uh, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ's portion. So seven times in those verses, Paul says, this is the community that God is building. It's about oneness. And when God gives gifts to the church, the application is this, that he will bring people together in their understanding. So when we gather as church, we don't say, yeah, we just disagree about everything here. We say, no, we're teaching. We're teaching what the Bible says. And we're discussing it in our small group. And it's not just an open-ended, hey, does anybody happen to agree with Dan this week? And it's like, well, was what he was teaching accurate? Let's look at the Bible for ourselves. Can we agree on this? Let's work out unity of what we believe. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit. But to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned to us. Here's the the, the third thing then, to build up. God is building up this thing to being a holy dwelling place for God. And he does it through using gifts. He does it. He says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. God used gifted people to build the tabernacle, and he used grace-gifted people to build his church. And you and I have all been given unique grace-gifting to help build this church and the churches that you will go on to be a part of. See, God's plan for your life isn't to be just the best me that I can be. It's to make your church be the best church that it can be for the glory of God. Here's something that can happen in churches. You see, in believing our oneness, we love the grace gifts God's given us. And because he makes us different, we can find those very grace gifts make us a cause of disunity. Because... Actually, God puts all those things to work together. He doesn't pitch the evangelist against the pastor. You know, the evangelist, oh, we're just interested in the loss of the pastor. We're not interested in the loss. We're just about the people. Both of those things. The church needs to do both of those things, doesn't it? He doesn't pitch the the prophet against 
the teacher. You know, I'm all about the Spirit of God coming. I'm all about just teaching this boring old book called the Bible. No, no, it's not like that. God puts those things together. But if you're not careful, you can find yourself feeding and associating just with the people who are like you. I just want to warn you and encourage you not to be like that. That can be divisive. You know, sometimes... Paul says, make every effort to keep the bond of peace. Sometimes Julie and I need to have an argument. And it's increasingly hard in a, in a family where the kids are up till whatever time. So we have to go and find a quiet corner of the house and do it in a hushed whisper. Which is really annoying. Because sometimes you just want to say it loud. And say it strong. And anyway, it goes unnoticed by the rest of the house except for my daughter, who has a sixth sense. And wherever we are, you know, no matter how well we're hidden, no matter how hush we're talking to each other, she'll come in and she says, hug, please. <laughs> and we're like, Haha, we're not arguing. <laughs> she says, I think you are, and I'd like you to hug now. She's done this more than one time. And, and, and you know, it, it just helps give us perspective because we understand that you know what, not everything's such a big deal, and, and we love her doing that, and we do hug, and we say, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> and, but here's the thing, Jesus wants unity in his church, and one day in eternity, unless we sort it out in this life, and, and love people who are unlike us, in eternity, Jesus will be coming up to you and I saying... Hug, please. You two who didn't spend any of your earthly life talking to each other because you thought you were so different. Hug. How much more glorious if we did it on earth? How much more glorious if rather than diss other Christians from other churches, we started speaking well of them? Even if we don't agree with them on everything, just say, I've heard some really great things about that church. Even if you hear there's negatives as well. God wants us to love his church and to build it up. Use your gifts to build up the church. Use your gifts to build up church and community using the gifts of the Spirit, using the fruits of the Spirit, all of those things. And let's be a place where God lives by his glory. Isn't that exciting that God wants to do this with us?